baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining us again on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. Regardless of political party, I think most people would agree that the presidential election year of 2016 rocked most political, social, and electoral norms. And news that continues to pour out of our nation's capital and erupt in our cities in our industries and spread across social media, has not stopped. Upheaval doesn't seem to be an overly dramatic word to describe it. But, you know, the nation has gone through foundation-rattling turbulence before, and many of the seeds of America today were sown in the ground-shaking year of 1968. That was the year rage over the unending war in Vietnam brought young people into the streets and Democratic presidential candidates into a wild race against their party's sitting president. It was the year rage around racism and segregation brought extreme candidates into the run on the right. The year two beloved leaders were assassinated, and the one who emerged the winner of the White House colluded that year with a foreign power for that ultimate prize. It's all documented in the new book, Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. This is my conversation with its author, MSNBC host of The Last Word, Lawrence O'Donnell. I wanted to start with the very last line, and this is describing Jean McCarthy. The Last Word, which of course is the the name of your program, about Jean McCarthy should always be that no one did more to stop the killing in Vietnam than Senator Eugene McCarthy. Probably of all of the characters, real-life characters in this book, and some still floating around, Uh, from 1968 and having an impact on our political discourse all these years later. Gene McCarthy is not one of them, and yet so pivotal. Tell us about Gene McCarthy. Yeah, and a reviewer in the Minneapolis uh, newspaper in Minnesota uh, declared Gene McCarthy to be the hero of this book. And I hadn't thought of it that way. I wasn't writing a hero. I, I was just presenting all of the characters and the roles they played, but I think that's a legitimate claim, and and I certainly have no argument. Kind of a tragic hero. Yes, he's a complex guy, and the term midlife crisis had not yet been invented, but during the 1968 presidential campaign, Gene McCarthy absolutely went through a midlife crisis, uh, and it continued for some years after that. It was a a transformative year for him, his family, his life, uh, as well as for our politics, and 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 his his decision is what transformed our politics. It, this was something that had never been done before. A Democrat decides to run against a Democratic president in primaries, primaries that were not supposed to occur. The only reason they were having primaries that year was so that the Republicans could have a fight among themselves. And Lyndon Johnson was just supposed to be automatically renominated. And uh, Gene McCarthy, in order to stop the Vietnam War, decided he had to run for president to do it because he had to put the war on the ballot. These days, we are discussing and uh, a lot about 
institutions, the, the norms of political discourse and the proper role of each of the the wings and uh, branches of government. So what pushed Jean McCarthy to run against this incumbent, this powerful Lyndon Johnson, to me that is so critical as we watch the norms being pushed aside today. Describe what happened in the Senate chamber when he finally walked out and said, by God, I'll do it myself if I have to. Yeah, well, he said that privately and off the record. And, and what happened was the Undersecretary of State had just testified to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that he believed and the Johnson administration believed that declarations of war were outmoded. And uh, the chairman of the committee, William Fulbright and Jean McCarthy and others on the committee were horrified by that uh, because we now had uh, a war raging in South in, in Vietnam uh, with the United States on the side of the South Vietnamese against the North Vietnamese. And in that year, in 1967, when uh, when the, the that the position of the Johnson administration was, we don't need a declaration of war. Over 11,000 uh, United States uh, soldiers were killed in Vietnam in that in that one year. That's more than the entirety of uh, the number of soldiers we've lost in Iran and Afghanistan over 16 years. And then the next year, 1968, that number went up. It went up to over 16,000. And so this was full-fledged war by anyone's definition when you look at it, but it was not legally a war uh, as far as the senators were concerned. And they now understood that the Johnson administration had no intention of trying to legalize the war. And so uh, Gene McCarthy was outraged by that, outraged to the point where he actually didn't say anything in the hearing. There's no dramatic confrontation in the transcript of the hearing with the Undersecretary of State. Instead, he was so livid uh, that, and I suspect he, he wouldn't have trusted what he would have said, he got up and left the hearing. And, and wa- when, when walking out, uh, said to his chief of staff that uh, if he had to run for president to, to do it, he would. Uh, by which he meant uh, get the war on the ballot. The response from the the White House. Now, certainly, Lyndon Johnson was not trying to uh, prosecute the war for his own goals, except that he didn't want to be a president to go down in the books who had lost a war. He didn't want to be the first president to lose a war. That was his obsession. The trouble is that couldn't lead you to a tactical strategy. That just led you to the thing you – all that did was conclude what you weren't going to do, which was end the war. So tell us a little bit more about the personality of Gene McCarthy, who this guy was, because he went through this campaign almost personally – trying to sabotage himself in, yes. in, in certain, certain it and seems yet that way. he kept running you, you know yeah. time after time after time and that's where the tragedy of, of his personal figure for me comes in is how he ended up the most important thing to know about him as a presidential candidate is that he did not want to run he absolutely did not want to run this was not something I knew when I was watching this as a kid in high school he seemed like the brave guy stepping forward to run when no one else would. And he was that, but he wanted Bobby Kennedy to run. And so did the Democrats who were trying to find someone to, as they put it, dump Johnson. These were the liberal Democrats who wanted to stop the war 
They were looking for a candidate to put on the ballot. They first went, of course, to Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy thought about it and said no. And then they went back to Bobby Kennedy again, and he thought about it and said no again. And so what I didn't realize was that Bobby Kennedy had been thinking about it for months, for the better part of a year, before Gene McCarthy began to think about it. And so when Bobby Kennedy said no in what seemed like the final time, the 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 Democrats who were looking for someone to do this went to McCarthy and McCarthy said, oh, no, no, you should get Bobby Kennedy. And they said, well, we tried Bobby. And he said, well, try George McGovern. And so they went to George McGovern and George McGovern said, you should try Gene McCarthy. And it just went like that in circles for quite a while. And they wouldn't have gotten Gene McCarthy if it were not for that moment in that hearing where the, the administration made it clear that they intended to conduct this war any way they wanted to without any oversight by Congress. And that was the thing, uh, more than any urgings by political operatives, that got Gene McCarthy to run. And then when he did, he surprised everyone by doing very well against Lyndon Johnson in the New Hampshire primary, so well that Bobby Kennedy jumped in to the race a few days after that. And to be fair to Bobby, he had been thinking about it even before the the votes were cast in New Hampshire. But when they saw that vote, that overwhelming, uh, how big that McCarthy vote was, uh, they realized a Kennedy vote would have been even bigger in New Hampshire. And it would have. That's true if, if, if he had done it. And so now you had this insurgency on the left side of the Democratic Party with two candidates, with McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy. Not long after that, Lyndon Johnson decided to simply drop out of the race, a gigantic event that, that if in any other campaign year, if the sitting incumbent president who was favored to win his reelection decided to drop out of the race, that would be the biggest story of the year. Uh, and in any other campaign year, that insurgency challenging a sitting president would have been the biggest story of the year. Uh, and then you just go on down the line through the tragedies of that year, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, which was a, a horrible time in the first week of April, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated in the first week of June after having won the California primary and looking like he's on his way to getting the Democratic nomination. Uh, and you can go on that with this list. It keeps going. But any one of those events would have been the biggest event of any other campaign year. Let's talk about the lineup on the Republican side in 1968 and two people that Californians are very familiar with, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. And I was having grown up here and um, followed, of course, politics here, was surprised at how crafty Ronald Reagan was, how um, much of an opportunist he was in the early days, especially with the Goldwater Republicans, and how far to the right he really was, having been a Democrat, having been the head of a union, SAG, Screen Actors Guild, and how he manipulated his way through that convention. Yeah. You know, so these words that I think you just made sound negative, like opportunist and manipulate, that's that's the definition of a political life. Sure is it is. And I don't necessarily and, mean just on, on yeah. a negative basis, but compared to his persona, yeah, the, yeah. the persona that he put forth of being a likable, warm... He he was working that road. Oh, yeah, yeah. That and work so, in that road. Yes, from our distance watching him um, without being able to be backstage, it seemed like the rise of Reagan was about charisma and a smile and warmth. And it turns out when you dig into it, oh, yes, but also this real political elbowing uh, whenever he possibly could inside the room. And 
And what he had to do to win elections was to actually moderate uh, his and liberalize his views. This was someone who was opposed to Medicare, you know, saying it was socialized medicine, saying that it was it'd be the worst thing that could possibly happen to the United States of America. And, you know, that once Medicare passed into law, it was settled instantly. There wasn't a single Republican standing up the next year saying, let's repeal it. That was just settled instantly. Argument over. Forget about it. And Ronald Reagan forgot about it as fast as anyone else. But no one had said more extreme things about it from, from a critical standpoint than Ronald Reagan. And he just had to throw that stuff away. He had to junk those thoughts that he had. Of course, a lot of it was recorded and literally recorded. Uh, and so, you know, it's there for us to mine. Uh, but no, he, he was a very sharp political operator. And in 68, he was up against a sharper one, Richard Nixon, who had more mileage on him, which is what you needed in 68, uh, in the middle of a war. And Nixon had been vice president and, and Nixon uh, was in the military himself. And, and so he was someone who was the more traditional choice. For he that. was not liked by the mainstream Republican Party operatives at all, personally liked. And he brought in a group of outsiders whose names reverberate to this day. Yeah. Roger Ailes is the most important, which is why Roger Ailes is in the first sentence of the book. Richard Nixon meets Roger Ailes in the makeup chair at the Mike Douglas show, which is like the Ellen DeGeneres show of its day. Only stuffier. Yeah, much stuffier. <laughs> and you didn't have to dance. And, uh, and, and so Ailes is the 27-year-old, which is shockingly young, executive producer of this show. And Nixon says to him, you know, something about why am I doing these silly show business shows when I should be on politics shows? And Ailes lights into him with, with everything Nixon has always gotten wrong about TV and everything Nixon doesn't understand about TV. And Ailes goes on and on. And Richard Nixon loves it, just loves it. No one talks to Nixon like this. He's a former vice president. No one talks to him like this. And he realizes this guy knows stuff I don't know that I need to know. I need him. So Nixon lures Roger Ailes out of show business into politics. Ailes helps Nixon get elected. He helps Ronald Reagan get elected. He helps George H.W. Bush get elected. And then he, he runs, creates and runs Fox News for Rupert Murdoch, where he helps every Republican everywhere get elected. And I do not believe that Donald Trump would be the president today if Roger Ailes had not created and run Fox News the way he did and turned Fox News into what it is because Fox News carried, carried Donald Trump through the election year. Is it that Richard Nixon so wanted to be beloved like the Kennedys were beloved? And it strikes me that Roger Ailes was telling him how to be liked by the mass audiences in America. And that may have been the first opportunity Richard Nixon felt he had to be generally likable or put on that persona. I mean, is that a fair? Yeah, what they noticed with Nixon uh, it was that it was it was was that he could be better in dealing directly with people than in making speeches. And the way they discovered this was seeing his home movies. There were Ailes and some of these people saw, just by accident, some home movies, not of Nixon's, but of Bob Haldeman, other people who shot some home movies with Nixon and their families at a, at a barbecue or at the beach or something like that. And they went, oh, this guy's great. Well, how do we get him? And so Ailes created a media strategy that looked... Uh, real and wasn't. It was, he would put 
uh, Nixon in what looked like these town hall meetings in New Hampshire. But everyone in the room was basically carefully selected to be in there. It wasn't just the random farmer off the street. What they were going for was the feel of a guy sitting on a stool at the diner answering questions. But they staged the entire thing. They edited it. They got it polished to exactly the way they wanted it. And then they put it out as little 30-second, 60-second commercials that looked as if they were being shot from some, you know, public event that Nixon did, which was not a public event, completely contrived. And that has become a technique that we've now seen carried right into the 21st century. Oh, sure. In every convention, too, the yeah. introductory video. Yeah. Sure. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Lawrence O'Donnell about his new book, Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. I'm Jane McMillan. You know, one other character on the Republican side uh, is George Wallace. Yes. Um, and I think most folks know about this uh, initially uh, rabid segregationist. And I've heard you say about George Wallace, and in your book, you're, you're very specific about saying, you know, we're hearing, we heard the same buzzwords in the Trump campaign. America first, make America great again. That's mm -hmm. a, some of these go back to Pat Buchanan, who's still they, kicking around. They, right? all, the phrasings come from the Nixon campaigning, mm. uh, Pat Buchanan campaign uh, phrases, and George Wallace uh, campaign phrases. George Wallace's campaign manager. Uh, in 1968, told me last year that when he listened to Donald Trump campaigning, he was listening to George Wallace, that everything about it, stylistically, the emptiness of the policy positions and the name calling and most especially the fighting with the protesters in the audience. Uh, George Wallace always saw that the protester in the audience would allow George Wallace to show his audience how tough he is. So he'd fight directly with them, yell at them. And you saw, you know, Trump last year saying, I want to, you know, I'd, I'd like to punch him in the face to the protesters um, at his events. And, and the Trump supporters loved that. The difference, and this is what I wanted to ask you about, not so much the person, George Wallace, and the campaigner George Wallace from the campaigner uh, Donald Trump, but the nation's response to it. And the big difference is the nation in 1968 did not go in a big way for a George Wallace. No, That's and, not and what he, happened in 2016. Right. So Wallace started to surge in September after a disastrous Democratic convention uh, where there was rioting in the streets and, and some rioting inside the convention hall. And so Wallace started to surge. And what destroyed him was his choice of vice presidential candidate, who on the first day he introduced this vice presidential candidate, Curtis LeMay, who had been an Air Force general. LeMay started sounding like Donald Trump talking about nuclear weapons. LeMay started to say, well, you know, if we have them, we do have to think about using them. And by the time he finished that press conference saying those things, the Wallace campaign was dead because the vice presidential candidate was reckless in thinking about and talking about nuclear weapons. Cut to 2016, Donald Trump is basically saying the Curtis LeMay stuff, and those voters hang in there. They are not troubled so by this. So what's the difference I think between the difference America was, I, than You know, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, was, you know, fairly recent in 1968. And so the threat of nuclear war, I think, in 68 felt much more clear and immediate. And now we have a president who jokes about it publicly and talks about a calm before a storm and no one knows what he's saying. I mean, that is so far beyond what Curtis LeMay ever would have said 
Let's go to the convention in 1968. And of course, when you say the convention, we know you don't mean the Republican convention. When you say the convention in 1968, everyone's talking about the Democratic convention, and most everyone is talking about Wednesday night, one particular night of the convention, where all hell breaks loose inside and outside of the convention. And what it really did was obliterate uh, Hubert Humphrey, who was the one who won the nomination at that convention, he got zero coverage. He came out of the convention and his numbers went down. Uh, And it was was unlike anything the country had ever seen before. We've never seen anything like it since. Describe what was going on in McCarthy's offices in Chicago. Out on the streets, when the police move in and who were faulted later for rioting... Mm -hmm. There's like a makeshift triage center that ends up in McCarthy's hotel offices. Yeah, the McCarthy campaign had a bunch of rooms in the Hilton uh, right beside Grant Park where all this violence was taking place. And uh, kids who had been beaten and were uh, bloodied were being rushed into the McCarthy suites. He personally opened up all of the rooms and said, yes, let's use this as the clinic. And he walked through and, and toured... It was like a it was like a general touring a, a military hospital in a combat location, uh, just looking at all these kids. And he felt horrible about it because he felt he it was his fault that these kids were here. It's his fault that they came to Chicago. They they went to New Hampshire for him. They helped him win other states. They they went everywhere with him around the country as volunteers. And here they were being you know beaten, bloodied. Uh, for it, and he felt terrible guilty. He he felt that he had unleashed this, and this was a man who was le- the least likely person in in government to do that. He he's a poet. Gene McCarthy would be spending time in his Senate office, either writing or reading poetry, and actually got a reputation as not a hard worker among his other senators because of that. And this poet's decision to run for president unleashed a fury that he did not expect. He was playing with fire and did not realize it. But that night in that convention, he absolutely realized that he had been playing with fire and he regretted it. Uh, He regretted bringing uh, these kids to this level of engagement so that they were actually risking their lives. But their lives were on the line anyway, with the war in Vietnam just grinding people up. Yeah, it was very personal. Every 18-year-old male uh, and older had a draft card in his pocket, and that draft card could be your ticket to Vietnam to get you killed. The draft was the fastest way to do that. 1968, over 16,000 dead in Vietnam. People who were going to Vietnam, who were shipping out, they they didn't feel a tremendous division from the people who were protesting the war. They understood people protesting the war, and many of them who shipped out were opposed to the war. They had no choice. Uh, This kind of horror was just coming everywhere in the country. And if it wasn't in your family, uh, if it wasn't you, it was your boyfriend, if it was your brother, it was your cousin, it was your neighbor, it was, no one escaped this. I, I know I'm skipping over huge events um, in a year that was just filled with them. Everyone knows what happened to Bobby Kennedy. Hubert Humphrey is the nominee. But what so many folks probably did not know is the communication between the Republican nominee and the and the Democratic president yeah. in office as they're discussing the war and that the Republican nominee is using that information to prolong the war, to collude with a foreign government that costs how many tens of thousands of, of lives when a peace process was underway. So 
Why was Lyndon Johnson talking with Richard Nixon about the war? Well, during most of the campaign, Lyndon Johnson actually liked what he was hearing from Nixon more than any other candidate because Nixon sounded to him like the one who was going to continue his war policy. Johnson liked hearing that. He also knew Hubert Humphrey was really straining over the war policy and trying to find a way to break with Johnson. So he often gave Nixon campaign advice about what to say if Humphrey ever softened on the war. It was an amazing thing to discover. This was something I did not know, was all this secret communication between the Democratic president and the Republican candidate for president and giving him campaign advice against his own vice president, who's the nominee. And in the end, though, LBJ really turned against Nixon in the final week of the campaign when he discovered through the CIA and the FBI that Nixon was indeed colluding with a foreign power to win this election. He was colluding with the government of South Vietnam, who LBJ was trying to bring to the peace talks in Paris, and he had gotten them just about to the point of agreeing to go. Nixon was very worried about this because Nixon needed, he believed, on election day for the war to be going very badly. He, The worst thing for Nixon would be that there are peace talks happening in Paris uh, on election day. And that was going to happen. But Nixon interfered and made sure that it wouldn't happen because he had secret channels of communication with the South Vietnamese government. And that, of course, is a violation of law. It's a violation of the Logan Act. Private citizens, which he was, cannot negotiate for the United States with foreign powers. And LBJ is stunned by what he's discovered. And he calls it treason when he sees it, when he starts talking about it. And he tries to figure out how to stop Nixon. But his Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense advised him, if you go public with this, you will end up revealing our intelligence sources, which would be very bad for us for a lot of reasons. Secondly, people just might not believe it. it might, they might just think it's an election ploy a couple of days before the election, a political ploy. And so you risk your entire credibility. You risk all of our intelligence gathering methods over something that people might not believe anyway. And then they also said, if Nixon wins, we don't want people to know this about him. We don't want people to think that the presidency could be won by someone who would do something like this. And their argument was that this should be, this should be kept secret about Nixon for the good of the country. That's how they defined the good of the country at that time. Certainly a sacrifice for them to be thinking of the good of the country when they could have done this. But in hindsight, was that the right thing for the country? That war went on for another, what, four and a half years and nearly 30,000 American lives, countless Vietnamese lives. It, is the country better off having not at some point known what went on and taken action than to have it go yeah. un, un, unknown and undealt with. No, I think what we know now is that the country could have handled it. Because remember, these people believed that impeachment was inconceivable, that in the nuclear age, you could never have an impeachment. They thought that was a Impeachment was a hundred-year-old oddity in our history. It had happened once, you know, in the aftermath of the Civil War, and um, and the Senate immediately dismissed the Im impeachment case. And so they never took, they never thought impeachment was a real thing. Uh, therefore, they believed the presidency should never be undermined. That the people, no matter which party has it, that the that the people should believe and have some kind of confidence in the presidency. 
once you went through the impeachment process with Nixon and he was driven out of town uh, and resigned, you know, 18 months into his second term, you had a completely different view of this kind of thing. And, and, and the country and the so-called wise men in Washington learned for the very first time that, yes, we, we do have an impeachment process. It works. We can use it. And we can use it when we should use it. That was just part of my conversation with Lawrence O'Donnell, author of Playing with Fire, the 1968 election and the transformation of American politics. And of course, there is so much more to the story of that earth-shaking year and its legacy in our America of today. Thank you for listening. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.